You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs in education here at the AGO. And this evening I am absolutely delighted to welcome Luke Sant, who's going to talk about Robert Frank. Um, before we start, I'd like to say that this is first in a series that are very generously supported by Penny Rubinoff. So thank you, Penny, very much. And I think Ben was reminding people at the door, and I often forgot, forget to say it, but if you do have a cell phone, there's always one that goes off at some point, so please turn them off. Luc Sant was born in 1954 in Verviers, Belgium, and went to the US as a child. He's published several books, including Low Life, 1991, Evidence, 1992, The Factory of Facts, 1998, Walker Evans, 2000, Kill All Your Darlings, 2007, and Folk Photography, 2009. He's also edited and translated novels in three lines by Felix Fenion. He has written for too many periodicals to list and has contributed to the New York Review of Books since 1981. Awards include the Whiting Writers Award, 1989, a Guggenheim Fellowship, 1992, the Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, 1997, Grammy Award, Album Notes, 1998, ICP Infinity Award for Writing, 2010. Since 1999, he has been visiting professor of writing and the history of photography at Bard College, Annandale on Hudson, New York. Luke Sant. Thank you for that introduction and thank you all for coming. Robert Frank who will be 87 this year, is our living monument of photography, the elder statesman of the art and its most celebrated and distinguished eminence since the death of Henri Cartier-Bresson in 2004. He is also the last of the beats, to the extent that he was a beat, having outlived his friends and subjects, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Peter Orlovsky, and Gregory Corso. Unusually for a photographer, he's also a pop culture celebrity thanks largely to his association with the Rolling Stones. His epical book, The Americans, launched 10,000 photographic ships, if not 100,000, but his photographs of the packaging of Exile on Main Street may have caused even more people of disparate and even uncultured backgrounds to consider the possibilities of the medium. His eye and approach have come to define art photography for many who may not be consciously aware of his name or his achievements, more than even Eugène Adjet or Walker Evans or Diane Arbus or Cartier-Bresson, he has changed the way we see. And Frank, a gruff, private, idiosyncratic character who's actively resisted fashion and the high life, has over the years acquired matchless glamour, not all of it by association. The Americans remains the cornerstone of his enterprise, the first item in his biography, the shingle on his storefront, and, as we shall see, the albatross around his neck. It is the definitive photographic roadbook, the culmination of several traditions. It seems to recapitulate and answer and conclude not only the practice of the photographic van der Jahre, as established by Edward Weston on the one hand and Evans and the FSA photographers on the other, but also the tour of the United States by an observant foreigner, such as Tocqueville's Democracy in America and Mrs. Trollope's Domestic Manners of the Americans. And even the uncharted travels through the country by its natives, as in Mark Twain's Roughing It and Jack London's The Road. That is to say that it appears to be more than a work of photography, to very nearly qualify as literature. A road book about the United States is automatically an ambivalent object, at once inside and outside the nation's historical trajectory. It stands outside because it is of necessity observed and accomplished from a critical distance, 
but it is on the inside because it is of the road. The road that crosses the United States is the road of Lewis and Clark and the Conestoga wagons and Union Pacific Railroad, the road of the tramps and the fruit pickers and the bonus army, the road of you only live once and they live by night and detour, the road of Bobby Troop's Route 66 and Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike and Dave Dudley's Six Days on the Road and Hank Snow's I've Been Everywhere. Before the construction of the interstate highway system, authorized by Congress in 1956, which established a kind of shrubbery line moving sidewalk across the nation. Any long journey by land involved following in the footsteps of hungry ghosts. Frank was on the second leg of his trip when the act was passed. Historical continuity was still a matter of daily routine. There were few national chains of any sort, and the face that the country presented to the traveler was far less made up. It was right around then that Harold Rosenberg wrote, American life is a billboard. Individual life in the US includes something nameless that takes place in the weeds behind it. Frank's pictures show people, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, in bars, hotels, luncheonettes, parks, offices, factories at funerals, casinos, parades, cocktail parties, rodeos, on streets and roads. They also show settings without people, gas stations, barbershops, newsstands, dime stores. There are jukeboxes, cars, buses, motorcycles, and each of the book's four sections is announced by a photograph prominently featuring an American flag. Some of the people are happy, some not. Some of the settings are desolate, so others opulent. The book would not be mistaken for a brochure meant to sell the country's image abroad, but neither does it constitute an indictment. At the time, however, the United States did not recognize itself. When the first American edition appeared in 1959, after initial publication in France the year before, the critical reception was savage. A brief notice in the New Yorker called it a beautiful social doc comment expressed with brutal sensitivity, but it stood alone in its appreciation. Utterly misleading, a degradation of a nation, thundered Minor White, the photographer and editor in his magazine, Aperture. The book caused such a furor at popular photography that the editors assigned no fewer than seven critics to review it, almost all of whom agreed that it was a wart-covered picture of America by a, a joyless man who hates the country of his adoption and who was willing to let his pictures be used to spread hatred among nations. The book sold only about 1,100 copies and almost immediately went out of print. That Frank's photographs should be received as negative propaganda is a bit easier to understand when you consider how much photography at the time was employed in the service of propaganda, however, however passively or by omission. In life, look, and popular photography alike, women were radiant, children grinning and tousled, workers content and landscapes inspiring. The achievement of the FSA photographers was consigned to the memory of an unhappy time, and none of it was easy to see then. Eminent photographers mostly produced uncritical and uncontroversial pictures, such as Paul Strand's formerly superb but cheerily complacent reminders of the warmth and humanity of people of the soil around the globe, or W. Eugene Smith's Essays for Life, which for all their deep empathy, nevertheless tended to comfort and flatter the viewer. There was indeed trenchant photography being made in the United States at the time by such artists as Louis Forer, William Klein, Helen Levitt, Morris Engel, and Leon Levenstein, but their work was primarily confined to New York City. You'll notice that all these photographers were, like Frank, not only New Yorkers, but also Jewish, so that they could be ignored or patronized by whatever passed for a photographic establishment at the time. Unlike them, Frank was furthermore a foreigner. He was born in Zurich in 1924 to a Swiss mother and a German emigre father. 
Beginning at the age of 16, he apprenticed with a series of local photographers and began picking up work. In 1947, he sailed to New York. Almost immediately upon his arrival, he was hired by the photographer and impresario Alexei Brodovich to take fashion photos for Harper's Bazaar. Six months after that, he resigned and spent most of the next five years traveling to Peru, Bolivia, France, Spain, and Great Britain. Upon his final return from abroad in 1953, he met Walker Evans, an immediate and decisive influence, who employed him as an occasional driver and encouraged him to think about photographing the American scene. The following summer, at a Fourth of July picnic in the Adirondacks, he took the first of the pictures that was to figure in the Americans. The year after that, he began his project in earnest, armed with a Guggenheim Fellowship, crossing the country twice and making side trips to Detroit, to industrial cities in Pennsylvania, and to Washington, D.C. In 1958, while employed taking promotional photographs of the New York Times, he began but never completed a richly suggestive project consisting of photographs taken from aboard city buses. Whoops. I'm, my, my photos are not well synchronized to my talk here. That's one of them. Um, his career as a still photographer did not exactly end there, but the medium was never again to be his primary focus. Many of the pictures he took for non-commercial purposes after 1959 would be scribbled upon, variously mutilated, and incorporated into montages and assemblages. At various times over the decades, he has claimed to have quit photography and become a filmmaker instead. And indeed, beginning with Pull My Daisy in 1959, he's made more than 20 films of various lengths and purposes, most of them extremely personal, but also including music videos for the likes of New Order and Patti Smith. This decision, or posture, or evolution, or volteface, can perhaps be attributed less to the discouraging early reception of the Americans than to its later success, and the fact that any attempt he made at a project that in any way resembled his masterpiece would be subject to invidious comparison. This can be seen graphically illustrated in the various works he's made over the years in which prints of images from the book and from his other early work are cut, nailed, drilled, bound with wire, or stained with various substances as if he were inflicting punishment upon them. And in the past 30 years especially, he has routinely refused all requests to reproduce the images in contexts other than his own books. This is wise in that it spared us images from the Americans appearing on t-shirts and greeting cards and dorm room posters. But on the other hand, it's also met, meant that Frank is at least visually absent from significant works of photographic history and criticism, such as Max Kozlov's New York Capital of Photography and Colin Westerbeck and Joel Meyerowitz's Bystander. After a while, it all begins to seem less like a case of proprietary withholding than of a kind of vendetta against his own career. But these symptoms also point to a deeper meaning, to an underlying dissatisfaction and frustration with photography. In speaking of the mutilated Polaroids he's made in recent years, I'm gonna go back to, yeah, the previous one. Um, he has, he's made in recent years, he's mentioned his wish to destroy that image, that perfect image. It might well be that his desire to destroy the image arises from the same source that allowed him to pr produce those perfect images to begin with. Frank was an exceptional photographer from the very start, as can be seen from the pictures he made as a teenager, many of which would fit seamlessly into any compilation of important post-war European photography. Many of the qualities of his mature work were present then and were possibly innate an unerring eye for expressionist framing, for example, that contrasted crowded margins with nearly empty centers and cropped images to the very limits of coherence, or a way of presenting chaos that allowed the eye to travel through it rather than getting lost. At 19, right here, he was already taking pictures in which large foreground objects are so out of focus they seem almost liquid, 
a photographic decision that he later ratified so that it was taken up by a later generation, but that would have been considered an error by most practitioners then. Alexei Brodovich understood immediately, though, since his own low-light pictures employ similar strategies, and that's undoubtedly why Frank got work so soon upon arriving in New York. For the first few years after his emigration, he was still a formalist, still primarily invested in the jazzy image, although New York gave him a lot more to work with than Zurich. Perhaps it was too much at first, and that's why he went to Peru and Bolivia, where he could simplify. His pictures from that trip seemed to consist mostly of hats and skies. Then he returned to Europe in 1949, and it was on that expedition that the first major emotional and intellectual leap occurred. The little book of 74 pictures of Paris he made for his fiancée, Mary Lockspizer, at the end of that year is his first great work. Preparing the ground for his approach to the Americans, much the way the pictures that Walker Evans took in Havana in 1933 predict everything he was to do for the Farm Security Administration later in the decade. In Paris, Frank learned to deploy his gifts more subtly. He learned that less can be more, that quiet can speak as loudly as noise, that patience is as important as speed, that a single person or item of street furniture can be as expressive as any crowded tableau, that inanimate objects can enact and convey emotion as eloquently as the humans who made them, that what makes pictures speak to the people who see them usually involves an implicit story lurking somewhere within. Indeed, Frank learned these lessons so well that his Paris photos are almost demure, at least when contrasted with his brash, brash teenage pictures or the dramatic work he made early on in New York City. The mood of his photographs darkened and deepened in Spain and Britain, where the last series he made of Welsh coal miners appears almost an homage to Bill Brandt. Back in the United States, it's also Britain here, back in the United States, he became close with Walker Evans, who seems to have all but appointed him his heir, co-signing his Guggenheim application and encouraging him to undertake a road book in a spirit similar to Evans's own American photographs. Then, when Frank took the wheel, beginning in the summer of 1955, Synthesis occurred. From the very beginning of his journey, he was making photographs that incorporated elements absorbed in every corner of his education. The jazziness of his early pictures, the declarative mood of his New York work, the simplicity and emotional depth of the Paris photos, along with numerous tips of the hat to Evans's work. And he was no longer merely making pictures. He was engaged in an epic work of documentation and expression. He was recording the material conditions of life in the United States in a specific historical moment, as Evans had, but with significant differences, partly owed to differences in temperament. Evans liked fixed and unmoving subjects. Frank was drawn to dynamic motion. Evans got the most out of a head-on, almost folk art approach. Frank was always shoving important subjects off to the edges of the frame. Evans was fascinated by cultural survivals from the past and handmade attempts at grandeur. For Frank, all of American culture was equally new, strange, and fascinating. Then, too, 20 years had wrought significant changes. You'll see a typical Evans building pictured among Frank's outtakes, but there will be 20 cars parked in front of it, partly obstructing the view. Evans made his great work in a time of want, when the American scene was held together largely by the memory of better days, while Frank was depicting a time of encroaching plenty, when citizens had not yet become full-time consumers, but were poised on the verge, beginning to take their televisions for granted. Frank, Frank's Americans are caught in medias res, talking, walking, working, looking out of the frame, shifting from one leg to the other. They are partly concealed by a doorway or a tree or a car or another body because they are in motion and the photographer is in motion as well. 
Hardly anything in the photos is centered, self-contained, sharply delineated, because Frank is not out to take pictures, but to make them. That is, he's not capturing and preserving an existing scene, but setting down his version of what he sees. He is making an issue of his own subjectivity. Evans saw what he saw because of who he was, because of his Edwardian Midwestern upbringing and his immersion in 1920s European modernism and his fascination with vernacular Americana. But he nevertheless photographed what he saw as if you would see the exact same thing had you been in that place at that time. Frank, on the other hand, shows you what he sees with full understanding that the image is not replicable not only because time passes, but because the picture is entirely the result of his active intervention. You are looking as much into his mind and emotions at the moment he pressed the shutter as you are looking out of a hotel room window in Butte, Montana in 1956. The Americans might be said to have brought agnosticism to photography. It forcefully introduced doubt as expressed by asymmetry, overlaps, tilts, radical cropping, out-of-focus foregrounds, and the deployment of massed shadows and pulsing glare. The whole arsenal of devices Frank had been assembling his entire career, here put to what were sometimes startlingly new uses, no longer wielded merely for dramatic effect, but to convey truth. And that truth is, of course, inseparable from the emotions that produced and receive it. And that is what the American critics in 1959 found so hard to grasp. Very little in their experience of photography had prepared them to confront photographic representations of complex emotion. This is not to say that Evans's pictures weren't often fearsomely complex, or Cartier-Bresson's, or Paul Strand's early pictures for that matter, but it was a relatively simple thing to squint at the photos and let us now praise famous men and decide to perceive just one thing at a time. You couldn't look at Evans's portrait of Allie Mae Burroughs and see southern rural poverty, not noticing or choosing not to notice the subtle contest of wills between photographer and subject, for example. Frank gives the viewer no such choice. His work demands total immersion, since there can be no safe place to stand. Every picture in the American subjects the viewer to a barrage of demands, which are bounded on either side by pleasure and discomfort. <clears throat> the picture is always beautiful, albeit sometimes of a difficult sort of beauty. And it is also always also uncomfortable, since you are awkwardly situated, too close to the subject, or clearly unwanted, or standing in a puddle, or hovering over a jagged surface that will hurt you if you lose your footing. The room is airless, the people are unfriendly or even menacing, the crowd is shoving you back and forth, it's too loud, too cold, too dark, too ambiguous. And yet the picture is beautiful, although you might not be able to say how or why, not for a long time and through many viewings, at which point you will realize that the beauty and the discomfort are of the same essence, are in fact inseparable one from the other. This is the United States, a country unlike any other you, the photographer, have experienced in your 39 years, your 39 reasonably cosmopolitan years. In many ways, it's a mess, uncultured, suspicious, ignorant, badly designed, graceless, bumptious, squalid, but at the same time, it's wildly inspired in its improvisations, democratic and oddly humane when you least expected, throwing unearthly juxtapositions at you at every turn, capable of startling moments of what you might call transcendence. Having made those pictures, you can imagine that Frank would be neither surprised nor all that put out by the reactions of the critics in 1959, since their attitudes and language were part and parcel of what he found on the road. The trouble started a bit later, when everybody discovered the beauty in his pictures and straight away set about simplifying them so that they could be experienced as merely beautiful, their emotional complexities leveled out turned into mere pathos or irony, each picture potential fodder for a homily. 
1959, Frank must have realized that such a fate was inevitable for photographs. You could only hold viewers off kilter for so long, could only make them look through your eyes for the brief time that the view was radically unfamiliar to them. Too soon they would be onto your tendencies and your crotchets and would learn to anticipate them. Soon enough, your pictures would be prized as effusions of your supposedly inimitable style that by then would be imitated by those who sought mere pathos and irony. And their truth-telling function would itself be transformed into a style, which worked well for two generations of Frank's successors, who were honest workers and sometimes brilliant photographers, if not quite as protean and self-creating as he was. But then those overlaps and tilts and out-of-focus foregrounds, those plunging crops and off-kilter compositions were press-ganged into service for lifestyle marketing. Every jeans ad could now proclaim its authenticity in a visual language unwittingly supplied by Frank. And so he must have decided that moving pictures with the further demands they made on time and attention could be the only possible next step. And because he couldn't stop making still images, he began to attack them, to make them radical and unpalatable enough to extend their lease on truth for a little while. He came to perceive beauty and substance as mutually murderous twins, inseparable and indispensable, but locked in endless combat. But if, if he had to choose, he would go with the less marketable of the two, proclaiming, as he did, less taste and more spirit, less art and more truth. Robert Frank, the greatest photographic artist of the second half of the 20th century, who shifted the art from description to interpretation and extended its reach to darker depths of the mind in a way that can be compared to what Goya did in painting, whose perpetual dissatisfaction with the limitations of his medium was matched only by his joy in locating and battering down those limitations, eventually met up with forces beyond his or anyone else's control. Photography, as a mechanical medium, is subject to a variety of intrinsic ironies, some of them benign, such as the fact that it does not necessarily require conscious agency. Great photographs have been taken accidentally. Great photographic statements have been made despite the fact that the photographer was merely intending a superficial half-truth. But that irony can be turned on its head just as easily. The photographic image can be hijacked, the photographic vocabulary of reflection and doubt can be suborned and made to lie. Every further progression, oops, every further progressive refinement of the mechanical process only makes it easier to counterfeit artistry. It is Frank's fate to have been the last photographer to have worked within a widespread general innocence regarding the medium and to have forged the tools for the undoing of that innocence. His work endures, even if it can be and has been imitated in every particular by his inferiors, but the conditions for its making can never be replicated. The photography of 1956 is as long gone as the road of 1956, replaced by, like it, replaced by something smooth, efficient, and utterly lacking in mystery. Thank you. Be happy to take any questions you might have. And we have microphones here. So, Sophie, would you mind helping me going the, the other side? So if you put your hands up, there's one here, right? That, that was a wonderful talk. Um, Thank you. And I was talking with Robert Frank. It must have been in the, sometime in the 70s. And he was, I asked him about, you know, about the Americans. And he said that he, he had been going through the contact sheets um, at that, just recently, and he kept seeing Lee Friedlanders and Gary Winogrands everywhere, <laughs> which was sort of, um, I think what he was saying was that they had learned from him, right. and then he had learned 
from them to see things that he did not see in 1959, which, which comes to my question. Um, you refer to the, the, the things in the contact sheets as outtakes, mm. um, as if it's a sort of um, three recordings of Charlie Parker or something, <laughs> and there's one that's good. Right. Um, what, what fascinates me is that there are 27,000 pictures and that he edited them very quickly. That big book from Washington, mm -hmm. it was done in a very short period of time. Yeah. And, and now that they've published a whole bunch of them, you realize that the book was not necessarily the best pictures. It was something else. It was his agenda. It was a story. It was a film script. But I'm wondering if, have you looked at the, con do, you, do you think, I mean, should we be denied these images? Uh, no, and in fact, well, we really haven't. I mean, the big book from Washington and the, the associated exhibition, they put a lot of the contact sheets on display. There was also the vast tableau of work prints that was up, and some of which were astonishing. Um, you know, it's, um, I, I, I can only guess that, you know, at some point after Frank's death and maybe it'd be long in the future, um, that you know, somewhere along the line, the collected images will be online and you'll be able to click on all 17,000 of them, right? Um, this will happen. Um, he made a choice. He, you know, it's, it's after all a framing decision like any photograph. The, the body of pictures that represents the Americans is it's, it's spontaneous work, you know, and it's not it's not made from hours of winnowing and culling and and deep deliberate decision. It's it's jazz. It's you know it's it's an active sort of quick editing process. So um, you know for what it is, it, it represents a work. The, the the totality of the other pictures represents some other work. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Um, just interested in some of the Rolling Stones stuff. Uh, two questions. Do you know about, has he made a lot of money over the years from the Exile cover and also the 72 film not being released? Is that his decision or their decision or both? Um, a, on, on the first one, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know about finances. On number two, though, um, it's, it was a complicated issue. You know, apparently Mick Jagger looked at the rushes and he said, this is a great film. Too bad we can't ever show it because we'd get her all get put in jail. Um, you know, drug use, et cetera, et cetera. And um, their, their people, Worked out a decision, worked out some kind of legal agreement where it could only be shown five times a year, maximum, only at educational institutions, and only with Frank present in the audience. Um, now, two things: one good, one bad, or whatever you however you want to see it. One of them is that it's on YouTube. You can look at it tonight. Um, the other thing is that. As far as I know, there, I think there are only like two prints of it, and they're both incredibly degraded. Um, it's, it's, you can barely make out what's going on. Nobody will be arrested from the, on the basis of this movie anymore. Hello? Hi, over here. Uh, yes, hi, sorry. Uh, it's okay. Um, th first off, thank you for coming. Um, Pleasure. My question is, um, uh, I guess, based on your uh, your statements and your conclusion about uh, the 60 years since uh, describing the road back in the 50s mm -hmm. uh, philosophically to today. Um, it reminds me of uh, some of the comments made about Frank during the, uh, the BBC program Genius of Photography, which you were part of as well. And I can't remember who said this, but uh, they mentioned at one point that uh, the Americans, the project, was uh, at some point or whatever a book of photography that incorporated images of flags and crosses. And uh, even one of the images tonight, the fellow with the outstretched hands, if you look at the background, there's kind of like a, a superimposed cross behind him. Um, how would you f describe that uh, change as well uh, 
60 years later as well. Um, flags and crosses? Yeah, and, and based on other countries that also hold flags and crosses uh, as important symbols for themselves, what makes that different in America? And, and has that changed in your opinion as well? <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, whew, that's a tough one. Um, it's, I, in, in a lot of ways, it's probably hasn't changed that much since then. Um, we, the, the difference is that we went through a couple of decades where it seemed like the flag and the cross were no longer as big a deal, namely the 60s and 70s, and then they came, came back full force. In reality, they probably never went away. It was just a matter of what the media covered. Um, you know, it, it does, of course, bring to mind, you know, whoever said this, and it, it's cropped up a lot in the last couple of years with the Tea Party and so on. You know, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in a flag and holding a cross. Um, and, you know, there's, there's this long tradition. Uh, I'm, I'm an immigrant to the United States myself, and I remember, you know, um, my parents, upon arriving in America, one of the many things they, you know, tried to process was, why are there so many flags? Because, you know, in Belgium, well, you put a flag in front of the post office so that people know that they're no longer in Luxembourg, basically, you know. But in the United States, you know, who's going to make that kind of mistake? Um, this is, um, you know, um, if I try to answer that question in depth, I'll be writing a book as we, and we'll be here until the year 2013. So uh, I think I better just, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how to grasp that one really. Um, he, he, you know, he immediately saw those flags and crosses, and of course, the flags and the crosses in, in the Americans, um, they're not viewed negatively. You know, the flags, they're at a picnic. They're not, they're not used aggressively. They're not used in a way um, that they've all, too often been used in recent times. They're not used in a way to reject anybody, to say, um, you know, are you a real American, the way it often seems to be the message nowadays. Likewise, the cross, you know, the, the two most important crosses I can think of in that book, one of them was a roadside grave, you know, from a car accident on some lonely stretch of road. The other one is held by this um, black man uh, wearing a turban and robes, kneeling by the side of the, the Mississippi, who's this unbelievable transcendent figure, you know. Um, so I, I think he's, um, he's seeing the benign forms of those symbols as they're expressed in the American landscape. You know, that, which is not to say that there's not darkness implicit in every picture in, in the Americans as well as light, but generally it's not hostile. Yes? Um, well, you know, the, the thing is that... Um, yeah, yeah, other than a tangle of bodies. Well... It's, um, I think it, it, it took rather little time for, um, you know, I mean, part of it, the, the publication history of the Americans, you know, and the, the history of its absorption, it only sold 1,100 copies and almost immediately went out of print. But it's like one of those things, it's like that famous statement, you know, everybody who bought the first Velvet Underground album went out and started a band. You feel like everybody who bought a copy of the Americans became a photographer. And its lessons were absorbed with unbelievable speed, and so many of those stylistic tropes and decisions um, immediately got accepted as a shortcut for saying, this is the truth, it's unvarnished, it gets to the heart of things, it, it's not shilly-shallowing, it's not, um, you know, this photograph was almost taken against the photographer's will in a way, that's what, what it seems, and of course that is the easiest thing in the world to replicate. And, um, and in advertising photography, you started seeing things that were like Frank, probably, you know, within 10 years after the book came out. And certainly it's all over the place now. I mean, I'd be unable to, to cite chapter and verse, but I, especially I think in, um, in, I think of plenty of stuff in the 80s, for example, um, you know, jeans ads. Um, and um, just, well, I mean, one example I can think of, for example, is um, one of my students last year was doing a project looking at um, various 
motion picture advert. I mean, um, there's um, TV ads, um, not not still images. And there was some Levi's ad, I think, that where um, they used a recording of Walt Whitman or a supposed recording of Walt Whitman reciting four lines about America, and it showed you this guy walking through a field of wheat, and the image was cracked, and you could see sprocket holes, and it was wavering all over the place, and just about had thumbprints on it. You know, this is truth, right? And this is stuff that's been absorbed from Frank. You know, maybe at second or third hand, but that's an example. That kind of, the, the roughness, roughness equating to authenticity, and authenticity being this guarantor of whatever you're selling. Sir. Let me wait for the... Oh, yeah, okay. Whoever gets the microphone, I will take your question. We're recording this for the, for the web. We're going to podcast this talk. So if we get the answer as well, the question as well as the answer, it makes more sense. Um, I'm not used to speaking through a microphone. But uh, uh, one thing, uh, one difference between uh, Frank and Walker Evans that um, <clears throat> I'd like you to comment on is the, the amount of exposure they gave their negatives. Um, Walker Evans, uh, even when he was using a handheld camera, he, he showed a, a, a tremendous amount of detail in the shadow areas of the photographs, and Frank's negatives are all extremely thin, so it really, dar they're literally dark. Mm -hmm. This literal darkness has become a metaphorical uh, darkness. Mm -hmm. Most people's viewing of the um, of the photographs that, that I think it's largely responsible for the notion that they are critical and uh, um, cynical uh, cynical uh, representation of America. Well, oh, is that your question? Okay, so thank you. Um, don't you think it could sort of, you know, I mean, it, Evans decided to show that much detail. That was a conscious decision on his part. Um, he wanted, you know, it was just like the, the head-on approach of his photographs, the fact that they're often centered, often symmetrical, um, and there, there are, you know, there are shadows used strategically now and then, but they're really not about that. And I, I think that um, I would reverse what you're saying. I would say uh, it's not so much that the darkness of his pictures was interpreted metaphorically, but he, he made a decision for those shadows. It was no accident. You know, that's, that's um, it, it wasn't, you know, foot de mieux, he ended up with, um, with a lot of shadows in his pictures, and therefore people saw them as being dark. Um, I think that, you know, there, you know, he was working with shadows, uh, and you can see that in his other photographs as well, um, in, his pre, in his photographs from before the Americans, uh, the photographs he took in, in Britain and in Spain especially are very dark, and uh, the pictures in Paris less so. And I think that, you know, it, it was part of what he wanted to express. I, you know, as for the technical aspects, I'm not a photographer, I can't speak to that, but I, I can only assume that it was something he very deliberately intended. gentleman with the hat. Thank you. Um, if the Americans is his Velvet Underground and Nico, does he have a loaded? Does he have a, <laughs> something that, that is maybe comes later and uh, deserves a kind of a rehabilitation? Um, well, I mean, I think those, those, bus, the, those bus pictures are extraordinary. I don't know how many of them there are. Um, there's a lot of fugitive work in Frank's corpus, you know. Um, I mean, Steidel in the last, like, whatever it is, five years, has been putting out a lot of stuff. They put out the Paris book and black and white and things and Bolivia and Peru. Um, but um, I think that well, we don't know the half of it. Um, I know, I don't, I, I barely know Frank myself. I've met him a couple of times, but I know people who are close to him who tell me that in, you know, in number seven Bleecker Street, where he no longer lives, but has his studios and offices, there are just vast amounts, vast amounts of, of film. I mean, of, you know, 16 millimeter and eight millimeter film that nobody's seen. There's just 
all kinds of junk. Um, he keeps a very tight rein on things. Um, and occasionally, I mean, there was this, um, when the Met showed the, um, had their show on the Americans, uh, when it was a couple of years ago, um, and they showed a bit of film, for a BBC documentary about Frank, and he's at home looking at pictures, and he's looking at pictures that you've never seen before. Suddenly, or, and there's, a, there's a, a, a bit about him going to Coney Island with a print of these pictures of Coney Island that I don't recall ever having seen anywhere. And he's asking locals, do you remember where this was? He's finding older people on the street. So I think that there's tons of stuff, you know. Um, you know, as far as a work comparable to the Americans, who knows, this may turn up posthumously. We don't, I mean, you know, there may be, um, you know, certainly there's been, as far as I'm aware, no collection of the work he's made in Mabu in Nova Scotia over the past 40, 50 years, but, you know, it, there might be a great book in there, too. Who knows? Yes. Why did he wait uh, 49 years to re-release the book? Was it his idea, or did somebody suggest it to him? Like, he was the Americans? The, yes, he was 83, 84, like, when it was re-released. It seems... Well, it's a last-minute thing. Actually, the, the second edition was in 1969. Ironically enough, published by Minor White at Aperture, the very one who thundered about degradation of a nation. Um, and that's the one, in, in, and actually the, in the National Gallery, the big book, you can see where they lay out the, the printing differences and the cropping differences between three editions. And that Aperture book is the murkiest of, of them all. And, and so then, I, you know, I mean, I think he had his mind on other things. He was sick of it. Um, you know, a lot of, I mean, it's just a general fact that any artist is going to um, not want to hear about their earlier work, especially if it um, threatens to overshadow whatever they're working on now, you know, and, and, um, and certainly in the 60s and 70s, I think Frank was interested in moving on and, you know, interested in his films, did not want to be shackled to the Americans for the rest of his life. You know, and to get the proper reissue that was given it a few years ago, yeah, that's something that happens in the kind of twilight years. You know, then, then you know, when you're no longer working at quite that pace, um, and you no longer fear that it's going to, you know, your past is going to crush you, then you agree to it. No other questions. Yeah, is there one at the ah. oh, one here? Thank you. Um, yeah, one of my questions is, from what I know about photographers, uh, most of them don't put them in drawers and let them collect dust. Uh, Men like Avedon will die on the job. So my question to you is, um, he must be doing something currently. Could you speak to that in, in terms of what he's done recently? Um, in terms of what he's done recently, I can tell you that I've just seen a few things he's taken. Um, he, um, you know, he's, he's in poor health. He really is, and he, he has a very hard time with mobility. He's moved into a building on, um, on Bowery and Houston Streets in New York City because there's an elevator. Um, it also has incredible views, and he's been taking a lot of pictures out of his windows. That's mostly what I've seen. Sure. Sir. I just wanted to make a, a comment, although uh, somewhat uh, philosophical, about uh, what the gentleman mentioned about the uh, deliberate use of shadows with the film. Um, if, if we all remember that uh, those black blocked up shadows are transparent on film, so when we're talking about truth, truth is really you know, your perception of what that is. So the fact that you can see right through the negative, mm -hmm. there's an aspect of truth there. Yeah. Um, the fact that they print up black is, is also kind of a comment on uh, the dichotomy between color theory uh, within uh, light and the color theory based on uh, <coughs> pigment mixing. Mm -hmm. In the mixing of light, uh, black is considered the absence of color, where in art color theory, black is every color. Right. So the, the simple fact that we could walk by an image 
and either quickly dismiss it or you can stand there in, in front of it for half an hour to, uh, regardless of what detail is in that image. You yourself are having a relationship with that image whether you're seeking truth for yourself or the outside world. That's very, yes, that's very good, thank you. It also makes me think that um, um, Frank's first choice for a cover artist for the Americans, he w originally didn't think of having his own a picture of uh, one of his pictures on the cover of the Americans, um, and he wanted a cover by Franz Klein, um, or uh, I forget what the second choice was, but you know, Klein, I mean, you know, after all, he, Frank is by association a sort of abstract expressionist cedar tavern guy, so the, the use, black is not, you know, innocent, it's, it's got a real meaning. Sir, um, wait for the microphone, please. Thank you, Luke. Do you know if uh, Cartier-Bresson and Robert Frank ever met personally? Um, I don't know absolutely, but I would be very surprised if they hadn't. Um, they crossed paths many times. You know, Frank spent time in Paris. Uh, they, they both knew Del Pire. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of intersections there. I'm, I'm not his biographer, so I don't know, but yeah, I would think so. No more comments or questions, all right. Okay. I would like to thank you so much for this talk, which is it's so appropriate at this moment when we're just about to open Abstract Expressionist New York. Uh, I think, is, is it open next weekend? No, the members preview is Thursday and Friday. So this is just a marvelous beginning to that. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you all. So I just want to tell you that in June we have two talks to go with abstract expressionism. We have Glenn Lowry will be in conversation with Matthew Teitelbaum on June 15th, which should be very interesting. And then on June 29th, we have Norman Clayblatt, who's the chief curator at the Jewish Museum on, on, in New York, talking about abstract expressionism as well. And we hope to continue this series in the fall with Fred Richin, who will have really interesting things to say. I think two of his topics are uh, the digital, you know, digital age of, of cameras and also human rights in photography. I think he's just written a book about that. And then we really hope to have Stephen Shaw after Christmas, sometime in the winter. So please come back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.